Today's scripture reading is from Titus chapter 3, 3 through 6, and John chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. Titus 3, 3 through 6. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey there, good morning. My name is Jonathan, and I'm honored to serve as a pastor of this church. Welcome to you if you are new and have never been here before. We know coming into new spaces, new community is not always the easiest thing, so we're glad that you're here. Help us, let us uh, know how we can love you, serve you, get to know you. Uh, we're in a fall series that we have entitled Abide Practices of Grace. The big picture is formation. We've been talking about spiritual formation, but we've also been talking about just formation in general. You are being formed, Christian and non-Christian. Your life is being shaped. It's being influenced. There are forces that are coming against your life, mind, and heart that are turning you into a certain type of person. We're talking about the idea that as a Christian, what it means is to follow Jesus is that I enter into a process of counterformation in the gospel. That there are ideas that are influencing the way I think about the world, the way in which I engage with other human beings, and the way in which I, I build relationships and engage with work, some of the key areas that you value, and to say that there are forces coming at you that want you to live, work, play, think in a certain way, some of those bump up against the ways of Jesus. And so to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple, means that I allow him, through his Holy Spirit, to shape me, to be a follower of Christ and say he has no influence on my life doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, because if he's a king and he's resurrected, if Easter is a true story and not a fable, then you got to say, for me to be a Christian means I want to posture my life to be under the influence of Jesus through his spirit, encountering him with his people because he has given us a way to live in this world, and I want to be a part of that. That's what we're talking about this fall. I'm thrilled to be leading you through this. This has been a huge part of Trinity's mission and vision since we launched. We are now in year four. We have been through a pandemic. We have been waiting, not only just to get through certain seasons, but to have the ability to be a church with the right team that can move you forward. And so this is our moment to expose you to where we're going as a church. So if you're new, you're here in the right moment because spiritual formation is a big part of our heartbeat and practicing the ways of Christ right here, right now in your world is what we want to help you be equipped to do. So today we're looking at a specific practice. I'm going to introduce you to this in a moment, but the practice of kindness. But before I get into the specifics, let me just say this right here up top. I want to say that formation takes a lot of courage. In a lot of ways, it takes courage for you to be sitting in the seat today, but formation in the gospel is an act of courage because it takes a lot of courage and character for you to position yourself to be undone, remade, and then repurposed as an agent of God's love 
in the world. That's what you're doing here when you come to worship God. Undo me, break me open, remake me, and then repurpose me so that I follow your ways in the world. The invitation of the gospel is into a process and a partnership with the Holy Spirit whereby we are changed, listen, not simply by the spiritual discipline or the practice, but where that practice is leading you. This is not a series on the practices. This in many ways is a series about Jesus Christ knowing him better and you saying to yourself and to one another, he is who he says he is. I want to be near him. What do I need to do to be in God's presence? Then we would say, you create a framework of godly habit, the practice of grace, so that I can encounter this God. See, the end of Christianity is not the practice itself. The goal of Christianity is God himself. And God has given us these things to be able to do and practice on our own and together so that he will light you on fire with purpose and with love in the world. Let me say this, and we'll take you to two points today. Formation also takes courage because it's an honest admission that says this. If I don't do this, I'll look a whole lot more like the world than our Savior. It takes courage to admit that. If I don't build in an intentional framework of habit, I'm going to get lost. I'm going to get off track, and I will wander away. But with it, I'll abide in Christ, and in Christ, I can do everything apart from Christ I can do nothing. It's a pretty difficult, honest admission. I need this in my life, and I need others to be doing the same thing, right? So the courageous nature of formation, the two points today. We've been looking at some of the um, head and heart practices in the first two. Uh, We looked at worship in week one. We looked at the practice of prayer in week two. And in some ways, we're going to look at a hands practice. Right? Practicing the ways of Jesus is not just head and heart, but it's also love and action. You see some of those shirts today. Love and action, right? That the practice of kindness or service or love of neighbor. But we're calling it kindness. So two points. God's kindness, and it drives our kindness. Okay, so we're gonna look at those two things today. God's kindness and our kindness. Titus. I'm going to go back to that passage for a moment. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. You might not have heard that in the original reading when Ishani read a moment ago. But when the kindness, let that word kind of speak loudly to you. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his Mercy. All right. God's kindness. Point one. I have two middle schoolers now, and uh, I like to stay current, okay? I got to stay up to speed. And so I like to ask my two middle schoolers, we got a sixth grader and a seventh grader, and I ask them something like this. All right, I go, listen, teach me, oh wise ones. Teach me. What is cool? All right. I want to know what's cool. And so we have a, a nice long conversation, somewhat regularly about what's cool and what's not cool. And we end up talking about dad's wardrobe and dad's music choices and his dance moves. And usually it's followed with dad's, that's not so cool anymore. And I understand their impressions. I completely disagree. But this is what they think, right? 
dad's not as cool as he once was. And so I say, all right, teach me what is cool. And they give me a litany of, uh, I don't know, new songs and, and the new Jordans that kids are wearing and the Yeezys and the, the different things that middle schoolers are talking about and caring about. And go, I go, mmm, that sounds so amazing. Right? So I'm being taught. I'm being relevant. I'm staying in the moment. And I kind of end our conversation with, mmm, thank you for teaching me what is cool. But then I go, you know what's really cool? Kindness. And I say it every time. You know what's really cool? Kindness is cool. Kindness is compelling. Kindness is a way into the heart. It is the basis of any genuine friendship. It's what turns enemies into friends. You hear that? We got a lot of enemies in this moment. But kindness is what turns enemies into friends, even in the gospel, and it's what moves people past the superficial reasons for having a relationship into the deeper waters of authenticity and vulnerability. You know what's cool? Kindness is cool. I'm not going to talk about the coolness of it. I'm going to talk about the way in which Jesus values this. Right now, in a lot of ways, we are living in a mean moment. We could call it a lot of things. But you turn on the news and you turn on your social feeds and you're going to go, this isn't as kind as I wish it were. We're living through a mean moment that's confused about the source of real kindness. And this is fun for me, but I get to quote my sister-in-law today, all right? There's not many Kerhulises out there, but this author's name is Anne Kerhulis. She is my sister-in-law, and she recently wrote an article on cultural kindness. You can go to the Gospel Coalition's website, and you'll find it there. But she says this, for all the talk about kindness, our world is growing increasingly unkind, divided, and contemptuous. If kindness is so popular, why is our culture so harsh? Perhaps this brand of kindness is lacking, pretending to do and to be good while unable to produce any real changes. Cultural kindness is more about tolerance, being nice, and enduring differences without complaining than it is about love. It asks us only to be pleasant to those who are different from us. It doesn't call us to love them. Right, so our current versions of cultural kindness have only led to increased division, superficial pleasantries, also known as tolerance or thinly veiled disgust. Let me just be very honest. I don't want anybody to tolerate me. How can that be a cultural value? You go, I'm just going to tolerate you. What? You're just going to tolerate me? I mean, you're just going to kind of put up with me and give me a superficial smile and say, look, he's got an opinion. We don't really want to pay attention to it. He's kind of disrupting the status quo, but we'll tolerate his presence. That has become like a value to us that we won't love each other, but that we will tolerate each other. And where that has led is to cancel culture as a counterfeit form of justice. But what's missing is love. Loving kindness is deep, it's enduring, and it's costly. And this sort of kindness can only be found in one place. This sort of kindness can only be found in the God of Christianity. Let me show you a couple reasons in a couple places. The loving kindness of God is a particular phrase that I'm going to break down for you. God's loving kindness, hesed, 
used over 250 times in the Old Testament, is one of the most important characteristics of God's self-revelation to us in the Bible. You've got an opinion of God. Does kindness fit into your understanding of who God is? Because he uses that phrase, or people use that phrase about him, over 250 times in the Old Testament. I'm going to pull out one. In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord declares his character to Moses, to the people of Israel, when he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Underline that phrase. This is who God is. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That translation that characterizes this phrase, steadfast love, is that Hebrew word, hesed. And hesed has a bunch of different translations, but here are the meanings that it carries. Mercy, kindness, covenant love, loving kindness, and the loyal love of God. This is who he is. Because I want to show you who I am. I am steadfast love and faithfulness. The reason I pull out Exodus 34, 6 of the 250 is because in this case, what's so compelling about God's self-disclosure to these people is that it comes after this really critical moment of national disaster in Israel's history. It's a moment of national disaster and disobedience. It's not a hurricane. It's not a forest fire. It's idolatry. God has brought them out of Egypt. God has redeemed them. God has saved them and rescued them. He goes, you're my people. I'm your God. I'm going with you. I'm taking you in a specific direction called the promised land. But the murmuring starts and the complaining starts and the doubting starts and the worshiping of other gods starts. See, in God's self-declaration of him being abounding in steadfast kindness, comes right after that. Hesed is God's declaration to his people that even if they abandon him, even if they give their heart and worship to other things, even when they fail him, he would remain faithful and loving and kind. Why? Because he's the God of Hesed. That's who he is. Right? He is faithful, he is loving, and he is kind. Tolerance sees difference and attempts to blandly accept it, but it can't offer genuine kindness to rebels, to runners, and to renegades. Only love can do that because only love sees you as you are, meets you where you are, and agrees to be a part of the long-suffering, beautiful process of change and formation in somebody's life. Tolerance is not committed to that, but love is committed to that. Listen, tolerance is designed to leave you alone, but God's loving kindness is designed to make you like Jesus. All right. Now let's go back to Titus 3, 3 through 5 again. Look here. At, what, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Sounds similar to Exodus 34, 6. By all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. You see, the gospel puts flesh and bone on the concept of God's kindness to us, to all the rebels, to all the runners, to all the renegades. Even here, Paul's addressing in Titus 3, the disobedient, the deceived, and the enslaved. God sends his kindness to us. But this time, it's got a body, it's got an address, it's got a specific name, God our Savior, Jesus Christ. Faithful love, loving kindness, hesed, comes to life in the person of Jesus. And so many people have a question, and this is a great question. You should ask this. What is God really like? I want to know this God. I wish I could know more of his character. You do not have to wonder what God is really like. All you need to know is what Jesus is really like. And there's a lot of different things you can learn about Jesus in the Gospels. But one of the things that's clearest about his character is that Jesus is so kind. And this does not mean weak. Right? Jesus is so kind, but he was never fake. Jesus was so kind, but he didn't just tolerate people. If by tolerate them, we mean that he enabled them or kind of condoned a perspective on truth that said, you believe whatever you want, we could coexist. Jesus was so kind, but he also told the truth to people, didn't he? Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Look, Jesus didn't just tolerate sinners. He died for sinners. He didn't just cancel offenders. He canceled their sin by dying himself on the cross. God's kindness is so important to your ability to be formed as people of love. I get to quote Annie Kay one more time. She says, Godly kindness confronts us in love so we might be conformed to his image. Because he loves us and wants us to flourish, God's steadfast loving kindness will challenge us, tell us when we're wrong, and change us. So Titus is talking about the appearing of Jesus Christ. He gives it a particular description. He calls it the kindness of God taking on a body, coming to live with us. One of the other most famous places where the New Testament writers talk about the arrival and the appearance of Jesus is John 1.14, very famous verse. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, important last phrase, full of grace and truth. See, this is hesed. That's what John's saying in John 1.14. This is steadfast, loving kindness. Grace without truth creates an environment that lacks meaning. Do you see that? Grace, all grace, with no truth, creates a relationship and an environment that doesn't have substance because there's no truth, there's no meaning. But truth without grace, it's just harsh and it's ugly. But in Jesus Christ, you have the combination of two of those things. And the New Testament writers say when those two things collide in the arrival of Jesus Christ, you know what you get? God's kindness to you. 
you get God's kindness to you. He says, man, I will tell you the truth. You are lost and without hope. Sin has ruined your ability to know me, see me, be in my presence. I have come to remedy that. I will heal you. I will forgive you. I will set you on a path of meaning. But it is contingent on faith in me. You have to abandon faith in yourself. I'm going to tell you the truth. Don't just tell me what I want to hear. Will somebody tell me the truth? Jesus was the kindest truth teller the world has ever seen. Not one or the other, but in perfect combination. And this is God's loving kindness to us. He loves you so much and to such a degree that he'd send his one and only son to offer you hesed in the place of condemnation, canceling debts by canceling Jesus. And what happens is as you receive this from the Lord, as you receive the kindness of salvation in Jesus, it's also God's desire that you give it away, part two, all right? One of the most famous passages that people are familiar with is Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8, here's what's written. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God wants from us. This is what God wants for you is for you to do kindness, to practice kindness. Sometimes we lose that when we recite, what's God really after? Micah 6, 8. He wants you to do and to be kind. So, part two, God's kindness leads to our kindness. And let's go to John 13, all right? If you have a Bible, you want to turn there in your, or your, your phone. John 13, verse 1, and then we're going to look from verse 12. John 13 says this, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's John 13, 1. Now let's go to verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. All right. God's kindness and our kindness. Honestly, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you have probably read, studied, heard, heard somebody preach on uh, John 13. This is a very beautiful passage, and it is hard to put into words what took place in the upper room that dark night. Let me try to paint a picture for you. All right, for three years, these 12 men have seen Jesus in action. Nobody like Jesus in the history of the world. They got a front row seat to the ministry of Jesus Christ. They were a part of it. They have seen Jesus feed thousands of people with a couple of loaves of bread and a handful of fish. They have been witness to blind men receiving their sight at only a touch. They have seen the untouchable leper reintegrated into society, getting a hug from a loved one for the first time. They have seen all of these people restored, reintegrated, brought back in. 
They've seen demons exercised at a word. They've watched as paralytics have been healed. They watched them kind of throw away their mat, give away their wheelchair, and start doing jumping jacks right after Jesus has restored their legs. They have been witness to all of these incredibly powerful, momentous, singularly unique things nobody else in history has ever done. They have actually been privy to watch people resurrect from the dead. They've seen a dead man come out of the grave after four days. Can you imagine the stories these guys shared in the short amount of time with Jesus? They knew that he was special. In fact, Jesus, uh, in fact, Peter has recently confessed Jesus as the Christ. Pretty big affirmation. These 12 men, they knew his character, they knew his ability, they knew what he'd spoken, they understood his confrontations with the religious establishment, they knew that he was unique, that he was a teacher, that he was a prophet, that he was a king, that he was the Christ, and at the Passover night that evening, he was most definitely the guest of honor. And that night, we're given that beautiful instruction and detail That night, Jesus loved those men to the end. We're given the detail also that Jesus got up from dinner in order to wash the feet of his closest friends. This means, of course, that there was nobody present. Maybe somebody forgot. Maybe they didn't employ a servant to come that night whose job it would have been to wash the feet of these guests. But in the ancient Near East, if there's nobody who has been set aside to wash the feet, you know what's supposed to happen? That everybody in the room was supposed to make a quick evaluation of who was the least and who was the lowliest of position. That these people, there's 12 or 13 of them in the room, they're supposed to be looking at each other going, are you the lowest? Are you the, am I the lowest? Am I the, you know? So it's going to be an awkward moment. But whoever is the humblest in the room is going to decide quickly and subconsciously, it's me. It's me. I'm going to go get the towel. I'm going to begin to wash the feet. The dinner is about to start. Somebody needed to take up the towel, but nobody did. And the detail we're given is that they are amidst dinner already. They've already started the hors d'oeuvres. Things are underway, and it says that Jesus decides to stand up mid-meal. He undresses, and he wraps a robe and a towel around himself, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And notice that he doesn't do it to shame them, but he does it to save them. In fact, when Jesus gets to Peter's feet, Peter denies Jesus' access. Lord, no, 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 no. What he's saying is, man, we blew it. We blew it big time. One of us should have gotten up. He's probably looking at like Judas. He's probably looking at one of these guys going, come on, man, like you should... Jesus should not be doing this. He goes, no, Jesus, you are not going to wash my feet. But of course, what does Jesus say to him? If I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. I'm not getting up to shame you, Peter. I'm actually getting up to save you. The most important being in the universe, derobes, washes these men's feet as a foretaste and a little picture of what's coming the next day when he will be fully disrobed in front of other people, publicly shamed, crucified naked on a cross. He goes, look, guys, tonight I'm washing your feet. And if you don't let me wash your feet, we'll have no share in one another. But tomorrow I'm washing your souls. 
And if you don't let me do that, you will have no share with me. John tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, I love that detail. He knows who he is. He's not insecure. He's not searching for privilege. He doesn't need these guys to bow down before him right there and honor him. He goes, look, man, I will be the guy to serve you. And Paul Tripp comments, this stunning act of humble love resulted not from Jesus forgetting who he was, but because he remembered who he was. He's completely untethered from privilege and from position. And what he does is he redefines power as the ability to use your strength, to use your giftedness, to use your privilege for the benefit of other people. Jesus shows us the greatness of his greatness when he lays aside his privilege and he washes feet. And just let me be clear, this was not a suspension of his mission. He's not like, oh, no, nobody decided to wash feet. I guess I'll have to do it. He's not like, look, guys, I got places I'm going. Haven't you realized that for three years I'm the king and I've got a throne and I'm heading in that direction? No, this was the mission to humbly love them, to humbly serve them, to wash them, to get to the throne Jesus was headed to, he would willingly have to embrace a cross. Why? Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus says, in the same way that I have shown you loving kindness, go and give it to other people. Literally, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. And if I have cleansed your sin, you also ought to have the motivation to go out and love your neighbor. If I have shown up as hesed in person, kindness embodied, then it is now your job because I have loved you with loving kindness to go and practice that in the places you live, you work, you play, right? John Tyson says, greatness is not about ease and comfort for our own good. It's about sacrifice and servanthood for the sake of others. I'm going to pull this together. I want you to be reminded that kindness is actually one of the fruit of the Spirit. You can go to Galatians 5.22, which means that this kindness that the Bible's talking about is sourced from the outside and happens when the Holy Spirit invades the inside. You see that? God is not asking you to kind of pull up kind of this, this will within you and just be a good citizen. He's saying, I'll produce my kindness in you. It's coming from the outside in, and the Holy Spirit wants to live there. That's formation. I'm not twisting you, your, your will, to go out and love your neighbor. Jesus is saying, if I've gotten a hold of your heart, love the people I love. Be kind like I've been kind. Biblical kindness is countercultural because it says, I've been gifted a short moment on this planet in order to love God and serve others, not to be God and to use others. Three things I'm going to pull together here at the end as you take up this practice of kindness, all right? A few things to consider in the practice of it. Number one, serving is a task while servanthood is an identity. What do I mean by that? 
Serving is a task while servanthood is an identity. What does this mean? It means that if you decide to serve others from time to time, you are always going to feel proud of a task that's been accomplished. But if you adopt the mentality and identity of a servant, it's going to become a lifestyle and not a project. Do you see the difference? I feel good. I serve somebody. A servant does not congratulate himself or herself for serving. It's just who they are, right? It's who they've become. And Jesus, how did he view himself? In multiple ways. But one of the ways he viewed himself in the scriptures is as a suffering servant. You know that? Isaiah 53. Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant. It was his identity. It was not strange for him to take up a towel and wash their feet. It's just who he is. And you know what ought to blow your mind? He's not done serving you. He wants to continue to give you kindness. And you know what it means to be part of his forever family? Is that when you are part of his kingdom in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, he's not going to stop serving you. That is mind-blowing. In my mind, in some of my early theology, I assumed, you know what? Now it's time for him to sit on his throne, and it's time for us to serve him. And he's going to go, I served you when I was on the planet Earth, and now it's time for you to serve me while we're here in heaven. Welcome into my kingdom. I go, okay. No, this is who he is. It's his identity. He's going to serve you for eternity. There's a difference between just serving as a task and creating the servanthood as a part of who I am. But if I'm created to be like the suffering servant, Jesus, he is going to conform you and transform you to be a part of his image. If you want to go to a place to read about the mindset of Jesus, go to Philippians chapter 2. Serving is a task while servanthood is an identity. Number two, kindness grows when you abide in Christ. Can I say this? You may not be kind. I may not be kind. Kindness is something that happens when you abide in Jesus Christ. And you may have all sorts of weeds, all sorts of meanness that has grown up in your life, all sorts of dispositions and attitudes and mindsets. What this means is you're going to go, kindness grows when you abide in Christ. It means that I have to position myself to allow the Holy Spirit to help me uproot those things that are causing me to be unkind and to be mean and to position myself to walk faithfully with the Holy Spirit who says, I will produce something new in your life. I'll do it, right? Position yourself to know me and you'll have the fruit of kindness. Thirdly and lastly, kindness will look like washing feet. That's what Jesus said. If I've done that for you, do that for others. Kindness will look like washing feet. What does that mean? It means it will often be unpopular, unthanked, and unseen by a world obsessed with privilege and position. But your kindness in this way will show the world a different version of good news and a different vision of power where followers of Jesus use what they have to help somebody else get ahead. This is kindness, a beautiful fusion of truth and grace, using resources and attitudes to build up somebody else. This is the practice of Jesus' church. Let's go hard after it, right? Let him shape that in you. Let's begin to practice it, and the world will see Jesus. He's kind. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your kindness, faithfulness, fidelity, vow-keeping, covenant love. We could leave here manipulated today, feeling as if it's biblical, but I'm not exactly sure why I ought to love my neighbor. But when we see the loving kindness of Jesus appear, all of the motivation becomes clear. It's first and foremost about God's kindness to us. It's about receiving before we give it away. And Lord, I know in a room like this, there are people who have experienced some hard things and it may have made them hard. Lord, there are things that, that have been done to us that we wish that could, could be rewritten, undone, forgiven, healed. It was difficult to be kind. Maybe it was never modeled to us. Maybe we always felt judged. Maybe we were always performing. Maybe our closest relations, our family, our parents, they were present, but they weren't kind. Lord Jesus, heal that in us. Love of others is not just tolerate, tolerating each other's presence. Or it's entering into a story. Say, I want to know you. I would like to help change some things and transform some parts of your life. We're called to that because that's your ministry to us first. So Jesus, in a lot of ways, I just pray for an eruption of kindness in our church. It's not thin, it's not weak, it's intentional and it's costly. It's neighbor love. Help us to feel your love in our life, the redeeming hand of a kind God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.